Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we meet New York Times bestselling novelist and playwright Charlie Lovett, whose latest novel is Escaping Dreamland, published by Blackstone Publishers. Much of the book is set in the early 20th century in New York City and explores historic New York and the lives of three young people writing series books for children. Think the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. The book is an homage to the books of our childhood, to New York City, and above all, to love and friendship. Liz Nash Taylor, author of Etiquette for Runways, says that Lovett navigates skillfully between centuries while exploring interwoven themes of regret, unrequited love, loyalty, and ambition. Not since E.L. Doctorow's Ragtime has the era in New York been so beautifully captured. Charlie starts the show with a reading from early in the book, where we learn that Robert, the modern-day protagonist, is a writer with a secret one with a direct line to his love for the Hardy Boys, Tom Swift, and the Tremendous Trio. I remember when I was that age, said Rebecca, nodding at the gaggle of preteen girls climbing on the horses. God, you would have hated my childhood literary tastes. I couldn't get enough of Nancy Drew and the Dana Girls and Cherry Ames. You know, those horrid series books? I cringe to think how many hours I spent with them when I could have been reading something good. Robert let her words hang in the air without comment hoping they would drift away on the music of the carousel. But just when the topic seemed about to evaporate, she added, how about you? What did you read as a kid? Probably Dickens or George Eliot. And there it was. The opportunity to begin a conversation he had been putting off for months. A conversation he had avoided with every woman he had ever met. A conversation that began so simply with the words, I loved series books too. I loved the Hardy Boys and Tom Swift and the great Marvel books. And yes, Nancy Drew. A brave man would have dived right in. A wise man would have known the moment had come at last. But Robert thought he was neither of those things. He was a frightened man, a cowardly man, a man just smart enough to recognize that his own insecurities efficiently destroyed relationships. Maybe if the day had not been so perfect, If he'd received a rejection slip in the mail and had labored for hours to write a few sentences, if it had been hot and humid or cold and rainy, if Rebecca hadn't brought him Katz's pastrami and made love to him on the floor, then he might have told her. 
Not everything, perhaps, but at least the beginning. At least enough so that the rest could unfold over the next days and weeks. But he had neither the heart nor the courage to turn the compass of such a rare day toward things he had done his best to forget for so long. It took me a while to develop a taste for fine literature, said Robert. It wasn't a lie. It simply didn't delve deeply into the truth. How about some ice cream? He took Rebecca by the hand. Can we eat ice cream after all that pastrami, she said. On a day like this, said Robert, anything is possible. That night, as Rebecca lay sleeping in the Murphy bed, Robert sat at the table, which served as both dining room and office, looking at an envelope from Plowshares addressed to Mr. Robert Parrish, a printout of Chapter 8 with a few minor edits in Rebecca's hand, and a wadded-up ball of foil that still smelled of pastrami. He saw them as items in a scrapbook, souvenirs of the sort of day that made all his work worthwhile. But niggling in the back of his head as he delayed cleaning off the table for a fresh start tomorrow was the conversation he had avoided with Rebecca at the carousel. She had grown up on Nancy Drew and the Dana girls. She had spent rainy afternoons with Cherry Ames. She would certainly understand his repressed love for the Hardy Boys and Tom Swift and the Tremendous Trio. It had been a long time since he had thought about the Tremendous Trio books. They didn't come up during discussions in MFA programs or over coffee with the members of his writer's group. That Rebecca had given him a conversational opening to reminisce over the books that first made him want to write only proved how well-suited they were as a couple. But he simply couldn't bring himself to dredge all that up now, when life seemed so perfect. Still, Robert fell asleep thinking of those adventure stories and of how they had changed his life for the better and for the worse. Hey listeners, before we dive into the interview here, I'd like to uh, thank you for taking some of your valuable time to listen to this episode today. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd also like to let you know about a couple of benefits available to our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you uh, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, show notes of this episode with images, links, and information about the authors are available at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O. FM. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. And now, here's a little bit more about the author, followed by our conversation, more readings and our writing life discussion. I hope you enjoy. New York Times bestselling author Charlie Lovett was born in Winston-Salem, North Carolina in 1962 and grew up as the child of a book-collecting English professor. After attending Davidson College, he went into the antiquarian book business with his first wife, Stephanie. About the same time, he began to seriously collect books and other materials relating to Lewis Carroll, author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, including Carroll's 1888 typewriter. Charlie's breakthrough as a fiction writer came when he combined two of his passions, rare books and the English countryside. 
to write the Shakespearean mystery, The Bookman's Tale, Viking Penguin, 2013, a New York Times bestseller which has been translated into several foreign languages. His next novel, First Impressions, Viking Penguin, 2014, was another literary adventure. People magazine called it a delightful novel that weaves together a modern love story and a literary mystery involving Jane Austen. He's also a playwright whose plays for children have been seen in over 4,500 productions worldwide. And when he's not writing, he hosts the podcast Inside the Writer's Studio, a podcast about writers, their lives, their craft, and their latest work. Now that sounds familiar. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. So let's start with one of your passions. I was curious about this book collecting because uh, old books play a part in all of your novels. Yeah. Um, I think people are always interested in reading about uh things that the author knows a lot about and is passionate about and getting sort of a look behind the scenes of maybe a part of culture that that they're not familiar with. Uh, and for me, that part of culture is is book collecting, which has uh, been with me most of my life. It's it's changed a lot in the last 40 years that I've been involved in the in the book collecting world from when I was a teenager. Uh, but it's been fascinating to me through all of those changes. Uh, and I, I've kind of been revisiting my own book collection during this, this COVID lockdown. I thought this is a pretty good time to, to sort through all the files and, and decide what stays and what goes and, and uh, try to get things in some kind of order. And it's been a really interesting trip down, uh, down memory lane for me in terms of picking up an object and suddenly remembering having lunch at a Riverside pub with a bookseller in, in England in the 1980s or, being with a Lewis Carroll friend in, in Tokyo in the 1990s or, you know, just all the, all the different places that, that book collecting has taken me, uh, to me, that's as important a part of the story, uh, as, as the books themselves. So yeah, I, I, that passion is, is part of all of my books to one extent or another. And I'd written books about, as you mentioned, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, uh, the lost book of the grail is about the, it's about the grail legend. So about sort of, um, when you think of, of rare book collecting, those are the kind of things you think of, you know, the great writers of, of, of the canon. But that's not what I grew up reading. That's not what I grew up being passionate about. I grew up reading the Hardy Boys. You know, those, those were the books that first got me excited about, about reading books. And so I thought it would be fun to write a novel that kind of delved into the other end of the literary spectrum, if you will. Uh, and and that, that was kind of how the first impetus for this came along. But when I was, a when I was in the book business in the 1980s, uh, you know, we couldn't keep those early editions of children's series books on the shelf. People, people bought them like crazy. So, um, you know, it's something that people, I think still feel very connected with both in terms of, of readers and collectors. Yeah. That's interesting because, uh, this is sort of a father like son thing because you grew up as a child of a book collecting mm -hmm. English professor and in the story in Escaping Dreamland, which we're going to talk about in detail in this episode today, um, there is a father and a son who have this connection through children's books. Did you have a similar connection with your father in the book collection field? Well, I mean, certainly, especially when I was a young man, um, you know, that, that gave us a, a point of connection. Uh, we had lots of points of connection, but, um, uh, and when I was in the when I was in the book business, there was nothing more fun than than finding a copy of a book that that would fit into my dad's collection, which he didn't already have. And, you know, going over the house and say, look, check out what I just found for you, you know. Um, and yeah, and we would sit around and, and 
talk books and and we continued to sit around and talk books until he, he passed away just a couple months ago so uh he 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 built a collection he collected robinson crusoe which is a novel that's been in print constantly since it was first published in 1719 so his collection in some ways was a it was a history of publishing um and he donated his collection to to the rare book library at emory university where he had uh, gone as a graduate student uh so yeah it was definitely it was definitely a point of of connection for us and my first book uh the bookman's tale was was dedicated to him because he's the one who got me you know interested in and excited about book collecting in the first place so how many books charlie in your collection that's a really good question. Uh, that question, answer to that question is changing on a daily basis. Uh, it's that, that number's going down right now is, you know, when I was younger, I felt like any, I, I collect, you know, anything to do with Lewis Carroll or Alice in Wonderland. And then when I was younger, I thought absolutely anything goes, you know, if this, I, I have a, a 23rd printing of this paperback edition, but I don't have the 24th printing, you know, and uh, I've been taking this opportunity during the, during the lockdown to, to kind of reassess some of those naive uh, young adult decisions and think about if this collection is going to end up in a research institution at some point, what parts of it are really useful for that and what parts of it are just clutter. So I actually have sitting on my front porch right now, 33 boxes, U.S. mail, first class uh, flat rate boxes of duplicate material, deaccession material that I'm giving away to collectors all over the country. Um, and it's like this weight being lifted off my shoulders. <laughs> yeah. And uh, some of them are things that I have extra copies of, but a lot of them are things where I just thought, you know, I don't really need the spoons anymore, you know, things like that. Yeah. Well, you, you'll notice listeners that I didn't get an exact answer. It's kind of like asking, yeah. you know, uh, it's kind of like asking a woman how many shoes she has or asking a guy how many t-shirts he has or something, right? You're not going to give a specific answer. Yeah. I, you know, I could say, uh, <laughs> in terms of books, you know, maybe a couple thousand. I don't know it, yeah. because there are a lot of things in the collection that are not books. I mean, one of the things uh, as a theater person, one of the things I've been particularly interested in is the history of, of Lewis Carroll's works in performance. Um, and I curated an exhibition at Lincoln center a few years ago called Alice live. That was all, all about that. And so I've really built up that part of the collection and, and that section of the collection, which includes hundreds and hundreds of items has only a few things in it that you would call books. It's, it's mostly playbills and, posters and and things that are related to this ephemeral art form that we call theater you know yeah so the 1888 typewriter that's a that's a thing you've got that it's a- yeah that's actually um it's actually in texas right now i there's a guy who is sort of the the person who restores hammond typewriters it's a it's a hammond number one typewriter and he was vacationing here in north carolina oh back in the fall, I guess. And he called up and he said, I hear you've got Lewis Carroll's Hammond. Can I come by, take a look at it? And so we, he came by for a couple of hours and uh, we talked about, I mean, it was, it's a pretty good condition, but he talked about, you know, getting it opened up and sort of cleaning it out and getting it, you know, looking nicer and able to type a little bit. So, um, so he's working on it right now and he's expecting to have it back up here probably sometime in August. So. All right. Well, that's great. Well, let's do this because uh, one of the things you mentioned just a moment ago, which I think ties into the discussion today, your, your earlier novels, they're literary mysteries, but they focus on, you know, I would say more traditional literary giants, Jane Austen, William Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, in this book, Escaping Dreamland, uh, you focus on genre fiction. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, the, about the shift and, and you know, how much fun you had, you know, focusing sure. here versus sure. before. Yeah. I mean, as I said, one of the reasons was 
that's I didn't grow up going, I can't wait to read the next Shakespeare play, you know, when I was 10 years old. But I did grow up thinking the same that about the Hardy Boys mysteries. Um and and there were several things that led to it. So that was one thing. Another thing was um when my grandmother passed away and moved out of her house, I went I went and took a few books. The, the books were just sort of like anybody who won the family wants to come to have some of these books, come have some. And I took a few books that had belonged to my grandfather when he was a child. Um, and one of them was this copy of the, the Legends of King Arthur that sort of helped inspire uh, my book, The Lost Book of the Grail. But next to that were these books called the Great Marvel Books. And this is, this is one of the really early children's series books um, issued by the Stratemeyer Syndicate that came before they did The Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. And so when I was sort of searching around for another thing to do, I was like, went back to the shelf of my grandfather's books. And I thought, wow, these are the books that, that he read in like, you know, the early 1900s that, that got him excited about reading. Um, and then the, and the third element of that was looking at those books and the copyright date on those, those great Marvel books is around 1906. And I knew that New York was the center of publishing. And I started researching what was New York like in 1906. And I thought, wow, this is a place I really want to write about. There's so much interesting stuff going on. There's so many historical events and characters that can be woven into the tale. And then just trying to learn about what daily life was like in in this great American metropolis um, in, a, in a very different time. And uh, it was it was a fascinating journey. Yeah, and I want to talk about setting in just a moment. But before you mentioned Stratemeyer, and that was something that when I was reading this book, uh, it, it, I didn't really know much about him and, and how, God, how prolific uh, he was and how many people were to talk a little bit about him and his influence on that that uh, genre. Yeah, and I think this is probably one of the other reasons I wanted to write this book is when I was in the rare book business, I discovered, uh, you know, I said I grew up reading the Hardy Boys, which are written by a guy named Franklin W. Dixon, if you believe the cover of the book. And Nancy Drew, you know, written by Carolyn Keene. Well, it turns out those people didn't exist. Um, they were all an invention of a guy named Edward Stratemeyer, who was um, a writer and publisher and book entrepreneur of uh, the early 20th century and beyond. In fact, his company was a family company until it was sold to Simon & Schuster in the 1980s. Um, and they produced hundreds of these children's series books um, in dozens or scores of, of different series, some of which we all know really well, like the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, and some of which have long ago been forgotten. But what Stratemeyer would do is he would he would create an outline of the book, you know, a 10 or 12 page outline. And then he would send those outlines out to ghostwriters and the ghostwriters would get paid a flat fee to write the book. So the guy who wrote the first 10 or 12 Hardy Boys books uh, was a Canadian writer named Leslie McFarland. And uh, he got paid something like one hundred and twenty five dollars a book to write those books, which was I mean, it was good pay at the time for the job he was doing. However, if he had gone with like a 1% royalty on the sales of the Hardy Boys books, he would have made out a little bit better. Um, yeah, but the yeah. whole story is just amazing. I mean, I think it's probably one of the greatest success stories in the history of publishing. Um, and yet it doesn't get a lot of attention because these were not great literary works. They were not intended to be great literary works. And right. when, you re when you read the early ones, they're, you know, some of them are pretty awful and they're pretty poorly written. And there's often um, things that we find distasteful in the terms of the the treatment of, of racial minorities and things like that. And yet they were the books that generations of Americans grew up learning to read on or getting excited about reading on. And so I think, I think they have a very different kind of importance from Shakespeare or Jane Austen, but, uh, but, but I think it's, they still have a, of a cultural significance. Um, 
so it, so it was fun to write about it. And, you know, when I talked to groups of people or back in the day, you know, when we used to be able to talk to groups of people, uh, I would always say, like, how many people have read the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew? And every no matter who the group is, every single hand in the room goes up. And then when I say, you know, how many people know that Carolyn Keene wasn't a real person? Like one hand goes up and every other face gets this horrified look on it. Like you're taking away my childhood. Um, but I, I do think it's a fascinating story. And and it was fun to kind of weave that publishing history into uh, into this novel. Yeah. And you mentioned the setting and structure. Uh, you know, there's a graphic on the book cover and in the front of the book. Um, I initially thought and I mentioned this too. We talked ahead of time that this was the World's Fair of like the eight, 1890s because it has that look to a dreamland. And you told me an interesting fact uh, about the connection between the two. Yeah, so Dreamland was um, an amusement park on Coney Island, opened in, I think, 1904. Uh, and it was, so So this is only, you know, it was being built only a decade after the, the World's Fair in Chicago. And the look of, of Dreamland, the architecture of the buildings and everything was sort of inspired by um, what they called the White City, the the Chicago World's Fair of 1893, and so it has those, you know, those very white paint painted buildings that are that are bright in the summer sunshine, and has this very light, uh, airy, um, open feel to it. And then at night, it had something like a million light bulbs that illuminated it. You know, at a time when a lot of Manhattan didn't didn't have electricity. You know, um, so it was uh, it was a place that was so the people who went there, I think must've found it so different from what their daily lives on, on Manhattan was like to have this bright, shining, hugely illuminated, um, uh, amusement park, just sitting there right across the East river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because as you described in the book, I'm thinking, wait a minute, Coney Island, this is Coney Island. This is not the Coney Island I'm thinking about <laughs> because, you know, at the time this was almost, uh, uh, like Disney World on steroids or something. It was uh, just a magical place, right? Yeah, and you know, Dreamland was one of several um, amusement parks that were on Coney Island at the time. Uh, and I chose it for for several reasons. One, I just the name Dreamland, you know, just uh, uh, but also just the history of the of the park itself, which I don't want to say too much about because it, it plays into the novel. But um, but there were several others. There was there was uh, Luna Park and Steeplechase Park, uh, but but. Dreamland just sort of had this cachet about it. I think it was one of the one of the newer parks at the time. Um, but but Coney Island in those days was, I think one of the things that fascinated me about it was it was a place where the rules of Manhattan didn't apply. Um, it was a place where you know you got on these these thrill rides, and if if you were the young lady, it was okay to grab a hold of the young man next to you while you're on the or or vice versa. You know things that you could not do when you were walking down the streets of of Manhattan. Um, and there, there were a lot of things like that where the sort of these, these very strict rules of etiquette and society that, that applied to almost every social stratum in, uh, in, in Manhattan at the time were very eased and lifted when you went to Coney Island. And it, it was a, it was a chance to kind of breathe and to, to be yourself a little bit more than, than you were able to be, um, in, you know, 1906 or 1907 in, in Manhattan. Yeah. So before our next uh, read here, I just want to talk a bit about the structure of the book uh, and just introduce the characters so the listeners will know who, who's appearing in these readings. Uh, you got two time periods. You're in the 2008-2010 period in Manhattan, New York. Uh, 
with two main characters. Well, primarily Robert. Uh, he's the uh, author who's been successful at a young age. He's got a novel out. He's a uh, he's considered sort of a literary genius. He's got people who want to interview him. Uh, he's the guy who loves the Hardy Boys can, and worked with his dad and so forth. And then you got the early 1900s, also in New York City, and three characters: Magna, Tom, and Gene, who sort of become kind of like this uh, triumphant of uh, protagonist on a mission, right? Yeah, yeah. They they all three of them for very different reasons um, are interested in breaking into this world of writing series books for children, and they they end up working together. Uh, and, and I wanted to try to represent, I mean, you know, with three characters, you can only represent so much, but I wanted to represent, um, as, as many different aspects of, of the New York period of that period as I could. So, so Magda is, uh, is a, from a German immigrant family. She came to New York as a, as a two-year-old, um, and very much wants to be American. You know, she just, she doesn't want to speak German. She doesn't want to, you know, opine about the old country. She wants to be an American. Um, Tom is from a wealthy Dutch banking family who lives in a Fifth Avenue mansion, you know, and then, uh, and Gene is uh, sort of a scientific genius. Um, but also, and Gene was a really interesting character to write because Gene is what we would today call a gay man, but we wouldn't have used that language in 1906. And the whole um, view of uh, of homosexuality and homosexual behavior it was so different in the early 20th century from what it is now or from what it has been since um, that that required a lot of research to get him right. But he lives, you know, down on the, in, in the, what we would now call Greenwich Village area. And, you know, his father is a, is a baker. He's, he's sort of a working class family. So it's, so it's a real cross section of, of New York, even just in those three characters. Yeah, and so we're going to have some reads involving those characters, but first we're going to start with uh, uh, this reading you've got that involves the, a father and a son's love of books and their uh, their fascination with what uh, they think was the last book written involving the tremendous trio. And uh, uh, there's a this is sort of where the mystery gets uh, starting to develop in the book because uh, you know you find out that Robert. Uh, is trying to find more out about what's happening in the early 1900s and the tremendous trio. And he's promised his father, he's going to go find, you know, the rest of this chapter, this first reading, I think uh, sort of reveals a mystery about that uh, chapter. Anything else you want to say about that before you read um, it? I mean, I guess the only thing to say about that is that, that all of the children's series books that are mentioned in the novel are real books, except the tremendous trio books. Right. And, and the, uh, so there's, so each of the three characters, um, Tom and Magda and and, uh, and Jean, they each write their own series book, uh, and then they end up sort of combining forces to bring their three characters together uh, as sort of a crossover series, um, and and that's the tremendous trio. So those those books are are fictional. Of course, it was great fun to write, try to write a little bit in that style. Um, so yeah, this is this is a scene where um, Robert is kind of. Uh, looking at his boxes of old of old books and uh, and remembering why he was so interested in them. New York City, Upper West Side, 2010. Robbie and his father had rationed out the final box of Pop Pop's books to make them last, which meant that Robbie had just turned 12 when they reached the final book in the Tremendous Trio series. When they had opened the cover of the Tremendous Trio Around the World, Robbie discovered a packet of several fragile pages held together by a rusty staple. I remember those, said his father with a smile. What are they, said Robbie. 
We have to read the book first, said his father. Robbie had loved the tremendous trio around the world, but his father read at an excruciatingly slow pace, almost as if he wanted to delay the moment the two of them finally looked at those mysterious pages. Now Robert picked up the packet with an echo of the excitement he had felt over 20 years ago. Do you want to read it? Robbie had said to his father when they finally finished the round-the-world adventure. You read it, said his father, leaning back in his chair and closing his eyes, slowly. Now sitting alone in his study, Robert picked up the stapled packet of printed pages off his desk and began to read. The Last Adventure of the Tremendous Trio. You are old enough now. Old enough to know what the world is really like. To know that not every young man is either clean-cut and well-behaved or scruffy and evil. To know that the good guys don't always win. That the dark side of human nature is darker than you thought. And that boys and girls do more than kiss on the cheek and hold hands. We think you're old enough that when you see a girl or perhaps a boy, you feel a certain stirring. Feel a haze cover your eyes and clarity disappear and urges well up inside. You were old enough to know that even made-up characters in books can't always be heroes, and that you will not always be a hero. Sometimes even the best characters do dreadful things, and sometimes, in all likelihood, you will too. You were old enough to know about secrets and hidden places, and so we are going to tell you. Are your parents watching? Make sure they are not before you read any further. This is not going to be an ordinary adventure story. This is going to be something altogether different something we think you are ready for. But be sure no one can see you, because not everyone will agree with us. Not your parents, and certainly not our publisher. So find a comfortable spot where no one will discover you, and prepare yourself. This may be the last adventure of the Tremendous Trio, but it will be the first one that tells you the truth. And for goodness sake, when you're not reading this, keep it hidden away. If your parents find it, well, we wouldn't want to be around to see what happens. Dexter Cornwall, Neptune B. Smythe, Buck Larson. <laughs> and that's enough to get the juices flowing uh, by the father and the son. We got to find the we got to find the rest of that story, right? Yeah. So I, I mean, I just thought it would be fun if you know these they got involved in writing these children's series books, and the publisher keeps telling them, you know, because Stratemeyer had all these rules about you know the good kids were a hundred percent good and the bad guys were a hundred percent bad. And, you know, the, the, the kids could never, um, there's all this list of behavior that they were never allowed to engage in, you know? And so I thought, well, what if, you know, what if these writers got fed up with that? And for one reason or another, we have to discover why they decided they were going to write a book that was a little bit more truthful about the human and the adolescent experience, um, than, you know, these, these books that they've been writing before. Yeah. And so we got one more uh, read before the break here. And the, you mentioned Magda earlier, one of the characters who's wanting to be a writer and she's a woman and that has his own challenges in that time. There's even a scene where she has to dress up like a man to do an interview to basically get the ability to write these stories. But uh, because this was a pen name kind of deal at the time, um, you didn't always know as a child, if you were writing to the author, uh, well, you didn't know it was somebody who was sitting behind a desk like Magda is in this next scene, responding <laughs> on behalf of uh, the particular author who doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the um, I think this I don't know, every time I read the novel, I go, oh, that's what it's about. You know, like when COVID started, I thought, oh, it's a novel about people who 
how they move on after tragedies because they all have tragedies in their lives. But when I was working on it, one of the things that I I thought it was about was about identity and the and the quest for identity and the different ways in which we are forced by society to to hide our our true identities and especially at that time, uh, and that's especially true for Magda. Um, but but you know it's it's true for all the characters at one point or another they're pretending to be somebody other than who they are. And so this is this is a scene where Magda is is professionally pretending to be somebody other than who she is because she's working for a publisher that publishes these children's series books. The Flatiron Building in the Last Days of Streetcars and Shirtwaists. Magna carefully slid the letter out of the envelope on top of the pile of her desk. In addition to typing correspondence, proofreading manuscripts, and making the rounds of bookstores on 23rd Street to make sure that Pickering titles were prominently displayed, one of her responsibilities at Pickering Brothers Publishers where she had been working for the past six months, was answering the fan mail. There was rarely as much mail as the publisher would have liked, but there was always some. With the promise of a quiet afternoon, she began to read the first of several letters to authors who did not exist. The letter, addressed to Cornelius Donovan, care of Pickering Brothers Publishers, 175 Fifth Avenue, New York City, was written in a childish hand on a piece of business stationery, bearing the letterhead of Herman Chlebowski, Taylor of Perth Amboy, New Jersey. At least, thought Modga, some of Pickering's books had made it across the Hudson River. Most of the fan mail came from inside the city. Dear Mr. Cornelius Donovan, my name is George Toblowski, and the books you write called Drew Stetson, Boy of the Seas, are my favorite books in the whole world. I like the one where he sails around Africa and the one where he sails to Antarctica but my favorite is where he sails to Alaska and camps in the wilderness. The scene where he fights the bear is the best. I like that you have wild animals in your books. I live in Perth Amboy, and the only wild animal I ever see is the dog that lives across the street when he sees a cat. Can you please tell me how a boy like me can become a sailor? I would like to go to Alaska and Antarctica, but not Africa because it is too hot. If you will please write back to George Chabowski, 985 Sutton Street, Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Your friend, George. And so Magda writes back. <clears throat> Dear George, thank you so much for your letter. I've just returned from an expedition to the southernmost Patagonia to collect material for my new book, Drew Stetson Around South America. So it was nice to find some mail waiting for me. I am very pleased that you like my books about Drew Stetson. The character of Drew is based on a fine young man like yourself who accompanies me on all my journeys. If we hadn't had him with us on our latest expedition, I shudder to think what might have happened. It's too bad you do not have any wild animals where you live, as they are quite exciting to encounter. In my new book, you will meet a creature called an anaconda, and may find yourself pleased that there are not many of those in Perth Amboy. I am glad that you wish to become a sailor like Drew Stetson. Perhaps you will have a chance to meet the real Drew someday, and he can talk to you about how to get started in that line. In the meantime, I can tell you this. Study hard in school and learn lots of geography. It is also helpful to read lots of books about faraway places. Drew once told me that he learned a lot from reading the Wild West Boys. I hope to see you one day when I'm out sailing the seas. Your friend, Cornelius Donovan. <laughs> okay, so it's it's all a bit of fabrication here, and yet the end result is uh, positive because the children are getting feedback and they're feeling good about themselves and they're and they're reading, right? Right. And of course, you know, Magda, she, she says later on that, that she sort of does the same thing with all the letters. It's the same conceit. She pretends that the kids in the books are a real book, real kids. And then, of course, there's always something in there trying to encourage them to buy 
more books. So she mentions, you know, another series by the same publisher. Um, but, you know, I think about one of the reasons I wanted to do that scene is because now, uh, I mean, you and I know this, we're podcasters, I'm involved in, with bookmarks. And, you know, certainly before COVID, I was I was meeting authors at least once a week, you know, um, sometimes authors that I'd been fans of, fan of for, for many, many years. But when we were kids, that just didn't happen. Right. Uh, you know, I go to these events. We had Dave Pilkey at, at uh, we had to put him in the minor league baseball park because we had so many kids coming, thousands of kids coming to see him. And I thought, you know, when I was a kid, not only did I not know that Franklin W. Dixon wasn't a real person, but it kind of didn't matter because there was no chance I was going to ever meet the authors that I admired that, that, that just didn't happen. And so I think it's great now that the kids have the chance to, to actually meet and, and come face to face with the, the authors whose books have gotten them inspired about reading. Yeah, well, that's great. Uh, listeners, we're going to uh, be back in just a moment uh, with uh, more about uh, escaping dreamland. We're going to actually do a read that takes us to dreamland. We're going to talk about the writing life uh, with Charlie and we've got a final read. So uh, please stay with us. Hey listeners, I'd like to share some information with you about uh, four organizations that are important players in our literary community, and uh, they're also supporters of the podcast, uh, Spark Publications, Charlotte Lit, Charlotte Writers Club, and North Carolina Writers Network. Spark Publications is one of our early supporters, and they have been sending me some uh, wonderful authors uh, with some well-designed books. They are an award-winning independent publishing firm that helps authors bring their work to life. They work strategically with their authors to help them complete their manuscripts, design their covers and books uh, for marketability, register their ISBNs and Library of Congress numbers, proofread, manage the print options, market, and much more. To find out more about how you can publish a nonfiction or art book with the support of an experienced team, check out sparkpublications.com. Charlotte Lit, otherwise known as Charlotte Center for Literary Arts, is an organization in which I'm a member. It's a nonprofit art center whose mission is to celebrate the literary arts by educating and engaging writers and readers through classes, conversations, and community. Uh, I really enjoy participating in those classes. Uh, they see themselves, and I do too, as a valued and vital part of the Charlotte arts community, and they've become a premier creative writing center for the region. You can find out more about them and how to participate at charlottelit.org. For 98 years, the Charlotte Writers Club has continued to offer a supportive writing environment in the greater Charlotte community. Uh, I was a board member of that uh, organization for a few years recently. Uh, really enjoyed uh, participating that way and also in their regular meetings, their contests, and their community organizations. They offer a monthly newsletter, uh, monthly meetings, and speakers. Yeah, I was speaker chairman too. Uh, they do critique groups, open mics, and... Uh, they offer writing workshops and writing contests. You can find out more about uh, Charlotte Writers Club at uh, charlottewritersclub.org. I'm also a member of the North Carolina Writers Network. Uh, they offer six annual competitions, three annual conferences, and I think I've attended uh, all three of those. Many online classes uh, and critiquing and editing services uh, for their members. They serve over 1,400 members in North Carolina and beyond. Uh, in all genres and all levels of experience, so uh, with all manner of publishing credits. To find out more about the North Carolina Writers Network, uh, check out ncwriters.org. As a writer and a reader, I have benefited from participating in all three of these writing organizations, Charlotte Writers Club, Charlotte Lit, and North Carolina Writers Network. 
It's been a great experience for me. I've also enjoyed collaborating with Spark Publications, meeting and uh, interviewing their authors and looking at their fine work. If you'd like to check out uh, what each of these uh, supporters has to offer, uh, go to our show notes, uh, scroll to the bottom, and you'll find information about each one, uh, links, and also a promo code. Hey, listeners, we're back uh, with Charlie Lovett. Uh, he's the author of many novels, including his most recent, uh, Escaping Dreamland. And uh, we've been talking about that the first half of the show. Uh, Charlie, in addition to this uh, focus on genre fiction that you've got in the book here, you focus on true events. I mean, you, you sprinkle in, you know, real people from the time. You have, uh, you have. I mean, I'm looking at the list here I made uh there's the 1899 Newsboy strike. There's the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. You've got uh, the flight of Wilbur Wright up the Hudson, the opening of the New York Library, uh, something I didn't know about, uh, the General Slocum disaster, which figures into the book. T- tell us about that in particular. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the first things I did when I started thinking about the time period is I went back and I read New York newspapers and I read histories of New York from that time period and and just all these amazing uh, moments that some, some of which, I mean, the Slocum disaster is probably the, is the best example of this massive historical event that is largely forgotten by the, the American public. The general Slocum was a, was a steamship, a wooden steamship, um, that left, uh, the, the pier on the lower East side. Uh, I think it was the 14th of June, 1904, something around, around then, uh, with a, with a Sunday school group, basically it was mostly women and children from a, from a, uh, church in what was called Kleine Deutschland. Uh, the Lower East Side was at that time the largest German population in a single city other than Berlin. Uh, and the twelve or 1,500 of them got on this boat, which then caught fire in the middle of the East River. Uh, and it was ultimately grounded on on what was called North Brother Island, which now is an island you can't even go to. It's you sometimes see it when you're approaching LaGuardia, but it's at that time it was a, a hospital island. It was where you went if you had smallpox or tuberculosis. Um, anyhow, about twelve hundred between a thousand and twelve hundred people were were killed. It was the largest single loss of life in in New York uh, prior to nine eleven. Um, and yet it's it's almost totally forgotten and it completely transformed that community. It sort of destroyed Kleine Deutschland and the Germans mostly ended up moving up up to the Upper East Side, to Yorkville. So uh, I thought that's just, you know, that's too huge an event to, to not not include, um, especially if you're writing a novel. As I said before, almost all of these characters have some sort of tragedy in their past. And so that was, that was an obvious one for for one of the characters to have. Um, but then I also love putting in these little small things you mentioned, you know, Wilbur Wright, like, you know, here's a day in, uh, I think it was 1909, where he takes off from Governor's Island, and he flies up the Hudson River uh, to Grant's tomb, and he flies around Grant's tomb, and he comes back. Well, today, that seems like nothing. But he was being watched by something like 2 million people lined the Hudson River, and probably the vast majority of them had never seen an airplane before. And I just thought, that's amazing. What a, what a cool day to see. And of course, you know, they can see him. He's, you know what the right flyers look like. This wasn't that, that much more complicated than an airplane. He's like wearing a suit and just hanging off the bottom of this thing, cruising up the, up, up the river. Uh, so yeah, I love, I love sort of weaving those moments into the, uh, into the narrative. Yeah. And the general Slocum disaster in the book, uh, that sort of set Magna on her path. Cause she was a young girl, uh, who was on the on the boat, she survived. Her family d- does not, so she has to make her way in the world as a as a woman in the early uh, you know, 20th century, and she is just uh, struggling to do that. But she's very 
persistent uh, and she's a good writer. And so she meets these other characters uh, and uh, they sort of form a bond with uh, not the Stratemeyer entity, but a sort of a <laughs> struggling yeah. young Pickering to talk about the the place where they wrote their books. I mean, at first I thought about having them, you know, be part of the Stratemeyer syndicate, but I thought, no, it'd be more fun if, if this was sort of a, a startup uh, publishing company that, that wants to be the Stratemeyer syndicate. That is, that is the tiny fish in the water that is ruled by the shark of Edward Stratemeyer, you know? And um, so, so yeah, and they're, they're in the Flatiron building, which at that time was a brand new, skyscraper but he's got a tiny little office you know in this in this building and uh so that's magda magda goes as we heard magda goes to work for him as a um what we would now call a secretary i guess she would have been called at the time or an assistant and um and that's how she gets her foot in the door and then uh then tom shows up one day uh asking to to submit a manuscript basically and and then they meet they happen they go out to get some lunch at this restaurant called Childs. Childs was a, was one of the first chain restaurants in, in the United States. And they had several locations around New York. And it was one of these rare places where it was kind of okay for a, a young unmarried woman to, to go in and get something to eat, you know? And so she goes in with Tom and even though they're not married, it's not scandalous, you know, and they end up meeting Jean. They, these people, Childs people eat at these big long tables, you know, and this was another part of the research. It was really fun to do. It's like, okay, find out the restaurant, find out, find some pictures. What, what was the layout of this restaurant? Like what was, you know, I found a menu from child's restaurant so I could see what they would order. Um, but ultimately they talked Gene into, he knows all about science. And so they're like, well, you should write a book too about a young scientist or a young inventor, you know? Uh, so they end up kind of all, all working on these books together. Yeah. They, they all sort of have strengths in certain areas and they help each other out in terms of their writing and critique each other's work. And that sort of leads eventually to them, teaming up for the tremendous trio. And, but as they're working together and publishing these books, uh, there's this day, uh, where they head out to uh, dreamland just to have a, have a day off and enjoy, enjoy themselves. Yeah. They get, they, they spend this whole summer writing these, these first three books. Uh, they're each, each of them is writing one book and it's the first book in their own series and is, you know, helping each other out, meeting up at the library almost every night uh, and then on Saturdays, they, they go off and do something fun. You know, they go to the, they go up to the polo grounds and see a baseball game, or they go to the museum or they go to the theater, you know, or go to a vaudeville house. And so when they get done, uh, with their, with their manuscripts on the last Saturday of the summer, uh, they decide they're going to go and, and spend the day at dreamland. Uh, All right. And this next read is going to introduce us to dreamland. I want to see everything said Bogda. The day proved more wonderful than Magda had dreamed. She felt like a butterfly emerging from the dark, confining space of its chrysalis. Her secrets had been shared, her fears conquered, and she was ready for the most spectacular, the most frightening, and the most thrilling experiences Dreamland had to offer. By her side, through it all, stood her friends, and on that day she thought of them as just that, forgetting in the magnificent spectacle of Dreamland her unrequited love for Jean and simply laughing and screaming and gasping with the boys. At Bostock's Animal Arena, they saw every kind of wild animal act, from tightrope-walking elephants to Bengal tigers, polar bears, lions, jaguars, leopards, and more. I could put an animal act in my next circus book, said Magda. No research today, said Tom, as they watched Captain Jack Bonavita and his 30 lions. Bonavita exercised full control over his lions with only one arm, 
having lost the other following an attack by one of his charges two seasons ago. Magda was especially taken with Black Prince, a Barbary lion with a dark mane and intense eyes. He's magnificent, she whispered to Jean. Magda liked the rides best of all. At Hell Gate, they first watched as a boat full of passengers was swept round and round a 50-foot-wide whirlpool before being sucked below the surface amid screams of terror and delight. The idea that being pulled under the water could be transformed from the horror she had experienced two years ago into an entertainment thrilled Magda, and soon the three of them were seated in a boat slowly spiraling around the whirlpool, describing a smaller and smaller circle, building up more and more speed until they plunged into darkness. Magda grabbed Jean to her left, grasping him as tightly in her arms as they seemed to fall. She felt Tom's hand gripping her arm hard enough to leave a bruise. The whole point of the rides at Coney Island, she had heard a young lady say on the ferry boat, is that you get to grab hold of the men, and they get to grab hold of you, giggled her companion. They all released their grips as the boat steadied, and they sailed through a dim tunnel on the walls of which were illuminated scenes supposed to be of the center of the earth. I shall decline to comment on the scientific accuracy of these depictions, said Jean with a laugh. A few moments later, the boat gathered speed again, and with an explosion shot upward. This time, the three held both their breath and one another's hands until the boat surfaced back into the sunshine on the edge of the great whirlpool. Yeah, that just sounds like a lot of fun, Charlie. <laughs> That's, you know, again, that was another fun part of research is, is finding out what were the rides and what were they like? And you, I, I looked through a lot of historical newspapers, a lot of times at the beginning of the season when the park first opened, you know, they would kind of write a review. If there was a new ride, they would, they would talk about it. Uh, and so, yeah, it was fun to really sort of recreate um, what that experience would have been like. Yeah. And, and, and novelists also sometimes explore relationships and you make it very complicated here because you got three friends that are really close. Tom loves Magda, Magna loves Jean, and Jean loves Tom. Yeah. <laughs> no simple solution there, right? No, no. no. Um, yeah. And, uh, and they all have secrets from one another that, uh, you know, that also make it, make that even more, more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, look, let's do the writing life a little bit. Um, one of the questions that uh, Robert disliked getting from a journalist, a literary journalist, or people who are writing about him in the Times or wherever was, you know, about uh, what he likes to read. And he, he said, he says in the book, he felt like a fraud uh, for pointing to a farewell to arms and the sound of the fury, for example, when he really wanted to say the Hardy Boys or in this book, the tremendous trio, your your made up series. Now, I'm just curious, Charlie. Did, did you know? You've gotten these questions. I've gotten these questions. Authors get these questions all the time. Uh, what books do you read? What books inspire you? That kind of thing. And I'm just I'm just wondering, have you ever had the same feeling when asked the questions? You want to you want to provide a certain gravitas to your maybe to uh, so, oh yeah, well I read this and this and this and uh, these very famous literary figures. But you ever just feel like you want to say, hey, yeah, I love the Hardy Boys. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, – Lewis Carroll wrote a great little essay uh, called Feeding the Mind where he talks about reading as as food. And he says you can't just eat, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy meals all the time. Sometimes, you know, you got to have some potato chips or a bowl of ice cream. I mean, he doesn't put it that way. But uh, – and I kind of feel the same way about reading. Like, yeah, you want to you want to try to read uh, important books. I mean, right now I'm – because of podcasting and because of researching novels, a lot of what I'm reading is for for 
either because I'm going to talk to an author or because I'm working on a book or, um, but I do have those favorite books that I like to go back to again and again. Um, and they're not the Hardy boys, but they're also not Tolstoy, you know? Right. Um, I mean, John Irving is a huge favorite of mine. I think the, I, I think the world according to Garp may have been the first sort of grown up novel that I read for fun. You know, that wasn't assigned to me or that wasn't for a school book report or something. I was just like, it was summer. I don't even remember how it came into my hands. I was traveling in Europe with a, with a buddy, you know, we were in college and I was like, I'm going to read this book. And, and so I've, that's a book that I go back to again and again. And I like, I like a lot of Irving's other books. Um, and, and there are other authors, you know, uh, Eric Kraft. I went back and read a bunch, reread a bunch of Eric Kraft at the beginning of the lockdown because he just creates this world that's fun to hang out in. He's not a real well-known author, but, but um, look him up. He's just, it's, it's just brilliant. Uh, and, and so there, I do have, I have a sort of a shelf of books that are my, you know, just in case, uh, I don't know, there's a pandemic and you get stuck at home with nothing to do. These are the books I like to go back to. You know? Well, you know, there is this sort of sometimes an us versus them, you know, the literary world versus the genre world, even with uh, what you like to read on the beach or wherever. And I thought it was kind of funny. I read one of John Grisham's book, uh, Camino Island, where there was some scene in the book where, you know, somebody was commenting about how that book wasn't really, you know, well-written. It wasn't literary fiction. It was just genre fiction. And and the author pointed out how much money that particular book had, had made and how many people loved to read it. So uh, what do you think about this uh, us-them situation that exists out there in the world? I mean, I just think it's important that people read. You know, yeah. I remember talking to John. I, I helped John with that book a little bit. If you, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the acknowledgments of that book yeah. uh, because it's because it's a book about the rare book trade, and he wanted to know. But and we were when we were talking about it when he was first working on it. He said, "I just want to write a book that people are going to read on the beach." He said, "I've, I've never written something that I, I went into thinking this will be a beach read." You know, and I, I think it's important that that we don't forget the joy of reading for enjoyment whatever that means for us individually. For some people, reading for enjoyment is Tolstoy. Uh, for some people, reading for enjoyment is is the Hardy Boys. And I, and I think the important thing is that you that you read for enjoyment. Yes, it's important that we, that we push ourselves and we get outside of our comfort zone some of the time. But if you do that so much that you forget that reading can be a pleasure, then you're going to stop reading altogether at some point. You know? And so, so I think it's whoever, whatever makes you joyful – to read, you know, you should definitely keep reading that. Yeah. Well, early in my legal career, well, I was really doing a lot of reading of books and uh, briefs that nobody else would really care to read. I would come home and I would pick up uh, a Louis L'Amour book. You know, I just wanted yeah. to dive into uh, another world. And uh, uh, I think that <laughs> I wasn't a rare book collector, but I did have a lot of paperbacks. And one day my wife decided to get rid of them in a yard sale. And it was like, what did you you know, some of that is going back to a, to a book that I've read before. Yeah. Um, you know, like, like for instance, the world according to Garp or, you know, yeah. um, uh, and so it's not, you know, it, it's not the necessarily the effort that it, that it might've been the first time around or the second or the third or the fourth time around. It's more like going to visit an old friend, you know, and, uh, and just wanting to spend some time with those characters. And that's, that's one of the things I really try to do the most is I try to create characters that people are going to want to spend time with. Yeah. Uh, and, and the litmus test for me is, do I want to spend time with them? Yeah. And man, if you told me I could go walk in a child's restaurant and sit down for lunch with, with Magda and Tom and Jean, I would be there. You know, yeah. I, I would love to meet them. That's great. So you do this thing on your show, um, and 
10 questions at the end. I did this thing in some earlier seasons. I'm going to throw it out at you. It's an either or. I'm going to give you a choice. Uh, it can be either or or both or neither. Uh, to t- try to tell us a little bit about your writing process, uh, ink pen or keyboard? Keyboard. Uh, dictionary or spell check? Uh, both. The spell check to see if it's spelled right, but but I have a complete set of the Oxford English Dictionary that I refer to frequently when I want to, if I'm not sure about the nuances of meaning or I'm trying to to find when a word came into use. When you're writing historical fiction, it's important that you use the word the way it was used at the particular time that you're writing. Outline or free flow? Mostly free flow. Um, The farther I get into a book, the more I might sort of write, okay, here's what needs to happen in the next three chapters, or this needs, this is the way it's going to end, but, but mostly free flow. In the morning or the afternoon or the evening? My preference is morning. Uh, the reality, like today, it's going to be afternoon because we had, you know, I got it. We have a new dog. I had to deal with the dog in the morning. Then we had a workout. Then I had this yep. and now it's going to be noon and I got to take a run and it'll be two o'clock before I can write. You know? Complete quiet or some ambient noise like music? Complete quiet. Okay. Writing the first draft or revising it? Which do you like better? God, I mean, it's like telling, saying, which of your children do you like better? I mean, writing the first draft is harder work. Um, but it has the fun of discovery. Um, but revising, you have those moments where you're like, oh, wow, did I come up with this? That's pretty clever. And you have the moments that are like, did I come up with this? This is awful. You know? Uh, Yeah, that's great. All right. Writing the work or submitting it for publication? Uh, oh, writing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's submitting it for publication is something that takes 30 seconds and writing it is, is your life, you know? So. Marketing or manual labor? I I enjoy marketing. Yeah, no, I, don't yeah. mind. I mean, especially, I don't know how much I'm going to enjoy it this time around because what I enjoy the most is meeting readers, going to bookstores, doing doing events, going to book clubs. Um, and that's going to be different this time. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I like to, to meet my readers. Okay, sort of an open-ended question. I sometimes ask authors, uh, and since you've written a lot of books, you've been in this world for a long time. Um what would you tell your younger writing self something that you've learned in your many years of experience uh, that you think might help your younger writer self uh, had you known it? I mean, I think one thing would probably be don't take yourself too seriously. Um, I I struggled for a long time to, to get a novel published because I was trying to write a great novel. And I think when I just backed away from that and just told a story about stuff that I was passionate about, you know, that became a best-selling book. So um, yeah, don't, it, it, the most important thing is to me is, is tell a great story with interesting characters. Mm. So Charlie, why do you write? Well, I mean, the easy answer to that is cause you can't not write. Um, you have, you have stories you want to tell, but also because of the reaction that you get from, from your readers, uh, you know, I, I have a young adult novel coming out next year. And so what I've been doing this summer is working on the, I mean, not a young adult, a middle, middle grades. Uh, I've been working on book two of that series. And what keeps me going is the memory of the looks on the faces of the children to whom I have read book one, uh, and how excited they get. Um, even if we're just doing it over zoom, you know, um, to, to know that you can, you can make somebody smile, uh, or think or have an emotional reaction and that they're grateful for that, that, that keeps you going. Yeah. I had a similar experience. I had a 
actually a teacher in a fifth grade class took my first book and they read it for about four weeks. And then I came in and read the last two chapters to them and they were all circled around wanting to hear the end of it. So it was just a wonderful experience to, yeah, yeah, to, to, yeah. Have, to have them engaged in, in what you're doing. Yeah. There's nothing like it. I, you know, I, as I wrote plays for kids for many, many years and had that experience of being with the kids, you know, as, as we were working on the plays, but, um, so and I hadn't written for kids for a while. So it was really fun to come back to this. And the first book, I had a, a group of kids, uh, mostly from our church, that we, you know, they they've heard the whole first book twice now because they heard it while I was working on it, and then they've heard the sort of the final draft right before it goes to publication. We did we did a twelve night reading on Zoom back in uh, in April, and probably pretty soon we'll we'll get a, the Zoom group back together and start reading book two because I'm about two thirds of the way through book two now. So. Okay, I'm not going to ask you your ten questions. You 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 you're pushing everybody else, but I do want to ask you uh, just a couple of them. There, you said one of the questions you ask is, "Where is your favorite place to write?" Uh, I'm sitting in it right now. It's in in my office at home, looking out over the backyard. Okay, and you ask another question: Where could you never write? Uh, someplace where there's a loud television playing. You know, like airport lounges usually are are hard. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the tenth question you ask all of the guests on your show is. What would you like to hear a reader tell you? Um, you know, I think that that my book had some special meaning to them. Uh, and I get that, especially with Bookman's Tale, because the protagonist of Bookman's Tale is a widower. And I've had a lot of people who have lost loved ones who have said that that, that book had a special meaning to them and, and was helpful in their, their journey of grief. Um, and, and, you know, to know that that something you've written um, can be meaningful and helpful to somebody who is at a low place in life. Uh, that's, you can't beat that. You know? Yeah. And this was a, uh, this was a really fun book and I, I know that uh, readers are going to enjoy it. You get, uh, you know, if, if you're a writer or a reader, I mean, you're going to enjoy learning some facts about uh, the publishing world, uh, but you're going to do it to sort of a, from an innocent perspective of, of children who, uh, who just love to read. And so we're, we're working through the book. We've got this little short final read and Robert has been on a quest throughout this book to find, uh, the, the rest of the chapters and try to figure out who these early authors were of the tremendous trio. That's part of his quest to figure out who these people were really. And, uh, uh, this is a scene in the book that's uh, not going to give anything away, but it's going to tell us that he's getting really close. Anything else you want to say to set this up? Um, yeah, I don't want to give too much away here. I'll just say that he has, uh, discovered this album, this, this, uh, sort of photo album of photographs and, and other materials. Uh, and this is the scene where he's, he's looking through it. And, you know, the reader as at the time that Robert is, is reading the scene, the reader will understand what a lot of these things mean. Uh, but, but, but Robert doesn't know what they mean just yet. The next page held two black and white photographs, each just over two inches square. They showed two different men dressed in formal attire, posed in front of the same fireplace. Beneath the photos, a caption read, Gene and, quote, Mr. Marcus Stone of Philadelphia, unquote. Both the men in the picture had rather soft features, but neither held a copy of Dan Dawson or a Frank Fairfax book. Robert moved on. The next several pages held a variety of uninteresting memorabilia, a ticket stub from a baseball game between the New York Giants and the Pittsburgh Pirates, together with a baseball card for a player named Cy Seymour, programs from the plays The Social World and The Girl of the Golden West, 
a postcard of the actress Evelyn Nesbitt, and postcards and photographs of several New York landmarks, including the Flatiron Building, the old Madison Square Garden on 26th Street, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Most of these items were captioned with dates in the summer of 1906. Robert dutifully took notes on everything, becoming more and more convinced that he had arrived at another dead end. With waning enthusiasm, he turned a page about halfway through the album. He almost couldn't process the perfection of what he saw. Hands trembling with excitement, Robert laid down his pencil, leaned back slightly in his chair, and gazed in amazement at the page. Before him lay the Rosetta Stone of the Tremendous Trio Mystery. Yeah, that's probably a good place to stop so people can uh, go out and buy the book. Uh, <laughs> the book came out in September. Is that right, Troy? Yeah, September 22nd. Good. Well, uh, let's uh, everybody uh, who's listening, you'll enjoy this book. Go out and uh, pick it up at your uh, local independent bookstore. If you're in Charlotte, uh, that could be uh, Park Road Books and Davidson Main Street Books and Winston-Salem. Uh, bookmarks. Uh, Charlie, uh, it'd also be information uh, listeners in the show notes about uh, Charlie and links to uh, him and a few photos as well. So, uh, Charlie, I really enjoyed having you on, on Charlotte Rears Podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.